So this morning we're in Genesis 15. Let me begin with a little warning to the parents out there. Next week we will be in Genesis 19. That's the story of Lot. So if you think for a minute of what happens in Lot's life, you got Lot, you have homosexuality, you have the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, you have what happens with Lot and his daughters. Next week is not going to be graphic, but it will be very adult, the themes that we will have to cover in here. So parents, if you're in the habit of bringing your kids with you, we love that you bring them in here. Next week, though, you may want to not do that. You may want to have the kids in children's ministry or youth ministry during the first service or even worship as a family together at home. You may want to stay home next week as we look at those subjects, unless your kids are ready to talk about those things. So Genesis 19 next week. This week, we're looking at Genesis 15. You can turn there now. Um, I saw this week that there is a restaurant in Portland, Oregon that is called Homegrown Smoker Barbecue. So it's a barbecue restaurant, but there's something curious about this particular barbecue restaurant in Oregon. They don't serve any meat, no meat at all. It's a vegan restaurant. They serve a barbecue burger that's made of soy. They serve a meatball sub that's made of potatoes and lentils fried. And, and I looked at their menu, and, and a lot of their food looks good. I had no problem with their food. I'd actually like to try some of it. My problem is with their name, that they call themselves a barbecue restaurant. Because barbecue, the essence of barbecue, the, the center of barbecue is meat. It's actually the meaning of the word barbecue. It's a method for slow cooking meat over indirect heat. So when you call yourself a barbecue restaurant and do not serve meat, that doesn't add up. At least not how we define barbecue in the state of Texas. You cannot call yourself a barbecue restaurant without meat. Barbecue without meat is an oxymoron. It's not barbecue. It's like Christianity without faith. Christianity without faith is an oxymoron. Christianity without faith is not Christianity. The center, the essence of our religion is faith. You you can't be part of Christianity. You can't be a Christian without faith. Faith is one of the most essential things in our religion. You all have a sense of that. You know that faith is at the center of what it means to be a Christian. But I I want you to ask yourself is, do you really understand this essential thing called faith? Do you know how to answer questions like this? What, what exactly is faith? How do you find faith? How do you grow faith in your life? What precisely does it mean to place your faith in Jesus? And what if you wrestle with doubt? Does that mean you're an immature Christian? What if you struggle to believe? Does that mean you're not a Christian at all? I want to help you better understand this essential thing called faith by helping you answer these questions this morning as we look at Genesis 15. You may not know this, but Genesis 15 is one of the most important chapters anywhere in your Bible. One of the top chapters in the whole Bible. Why? Because this is the first time in the whole Bible where God revealed to us what faith is and why it's important. That's what Genesis 15 is about, faith. Helps us understand this incredibly important thing that is at the center of our religion. So we're going to look at Abraham's faith in Genesis 15 this morning. He's going to place his faith in God in verse 6. But before we get there, there is something that comes before faith, something that always precedes faith. 
Something that is the foundation for faith, and that's revelation. If you want to understand biblical faith, you have to understand faith is not born in the dark. Faith is born in the light of God's revelation, his disclosure of himself to us. If God had not revealed himself to us through the world and through his word, then faith would be impossible. You cannot have faith in something you do not know. So faith is built on a foundation of God's revelation of himself. So, so how does God reveal himself to us? Well, to answer that question, let's see how God revealed himself to Abraham. How did God show Abraham who he is? Well, there's three ways in which God reveals himself to Abraham and to us. Three aspects of his revelation. The first is God reveals his person to us. He reveals to us that he exists. He reveals to us who he is. He reveals to us what kind of God he is. Now, most of that revelation of the person of God is found in your Bibles, but but Abraham didn't have this. When Abraham lived, none of this had been written yet. And yet Abraham still knew the basics because Abraham could go outside and he could look in creation and see that there was a creator God who was powerful, who was wise, who was good, who was benevolent. And Abraham had stories passed down from generation to generation about how this creator God made the heavens and the earth and and they were all good and how he made human beings and crowned us with glory and honor. But then he had heard the stories about how human beings chose sin. We fell from God, but God reached down in grace and how God has been restoring human beings and saving human beings. Abraham had heard all of those things. And so Abraham knew the basics. He knew that there was a creator God who was powerful, wise, loving, and good. God reveals his person to us. That's where faith begins, the revelation of who God is. But that's not all. God didn't just reveal to Abraham who he is. Second part of God's revelation, God revealed to Abraham promises. That's actually the, really the bedrock of Abraham's story. The whole story of his life is full of God's promises. That's where Abraham's story began. Remember chapter 12. Look back at chapter 12 for a second. Here's where Abraham's story begins. Chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. If you've not underlined these in your Bible, they're worth underlining. Really important verses. Verse 2, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the beginning of God's promises to Abraham. Then God expands those promises in chapter 13 and again in chapter 15. So look at chapter 15. Our chapter this morning begins with another promise from God. God continues to reveal his promises to Abraham. Look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. Do not fear. Abraham had good reason to be afraid. In the previous chapter, chapter 14, he had won an incredible, supernatural, improbable victory over the four great kings of the ancient world. But those kings weren't dead, and they had big armies back home, and so Abraham had reason to fear that those kings would gather their armies and come seek revenge. But God says, do not be afraid, Abraham. Don't be afraid of them. Why? Because I promise to be a shield to you. I will be your protector and I will reward you. I will provide for you. So chapter 15 begins with God reiterating his promises to Abraham. But Abraham has a problem. 
It's hard for him to receive these promises in verse 1 because he's got a problem in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, since you've given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Abraham is reminding us that he is childless. He and Sarah are infertile. They've not been able to have children, and Abraham is old by this time. Now, in our day and age, infertility is really hard, but back in the ancient world, it was even worse. It was a divine curse. As a man, if you could not have a son, you viewed your life as a complete and utter failure. You were a failure as a man. If you didn't have a son to pass on your inheritance to, your life was cursed. And so Abraham is basically saying to God, God, respectfully, why bother? Why bother being my shield and my provider? Because I don't have a kid, so it's all pointless. My life is a wreck already. So Abraham has this problem. How does God respond to this problem with another promise? Look in verse four. God continues his promises. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. God tells Abraham, Abraham, you are going to have a son from your own body, I promise, I guarantee it. And that boy will be the forefather of a nation so large that you can't even count the number of people in it. So God gives these promises to Abraham. Abraham's faith is built not only on the revelation of God's person, but on the revelation of God's promises, these incredible promises. Now what promises has God made us? Not these. God hasn't promised to give you a son, hasn't promised to make you a mighty nation. God's actually promised better stuff to you. Better stuff than this. You see, God has promised that if you believe in Jesus, you will never die. Now, your body will die, but that isn't ultimate death. You will immediately be with Jesus, and then God promises he will resurrect you. You will receive a perfected body back that will never experience fatigue or illness, pain or suffering again, and he will fill you with with completely satisfying joy for all eternity. That is God's promise to you. Okay, so Abraham's faith, our faith, it's built on the revelation of God's person and the revelation of God's promises. And then third, the third part of God's revelation, our faith is built on his past faithfulness. The first two there are fairly objective and external. God's person and his promises. We learn about those through his word. It's external to us. This third one is more internal and subjective. We look for the evidence of God's work in our lives. So we look at our lives and look for his fingerprints on our story. Do we see God working faithfully in us? Abraham would say yes to that. He had seen God working faithfully for years. So think back to Genesis chapter 12. Abraham gives in to fear, goes to Egypt, passes off Sarah as his sister and loses his wife. Guy totally blows it. What does God do? He shows up, supernaturally delivers Sarah and returns them to the promised land. Chapter 14, these four mighty kings come and take Lot, Abraham's nephew. Abraham raises up all the servants in his house, just 318 men, and they march off after four armies of the biggest nations on earth, and they win. God gives him a supernatural, miraculous victory. Abraham could see these fingerprints of God on his life where God had stepped in and faithfully provided. God has done the same thing for you and I. If we will look back carefully at our lives, we will see God's fingerprints all over our stories. 
we'll see how he's been faithful to us. I look at my own life. I look at how God provided Christian parents who raised me, showing me what unconditional love looks like, telling me about the gospel, helping me to understand it from an early age. I look at how God moved me through junior high and high school, protecting me from many of the things that that tripped up other people. I look at how I got to college and God provided for me by saying no to to my greatest desire growing up. My greatest desire was to go to an Ivy League school. I I wanted to do that. I worked hard for that. And God said no. And so I came to A&M angry at God. Then a few months passed and I began to hear about what my friends who went to Ivy League schools were experiencing. And I compared that to what I had at A&M, my godly Christian friends, the Bible studies that I was involved in, the supportive environment, Grace Bible Church, which I had gotten plugged into, and I realized, God, you were gracious to me by saying no. I see God's fingerprints all over my life, providing for me, blessing me, taking care of me. As we look at our lives, as we look at God's word, as we look at God's world, we see his revelation. He is speaking to us all the time, telling us about who he is, his person, what he's promised us, and showing us what he's done in our past. Faith isn't born in the dark. It's born in the light of God's revelation. That's the foundation that faith stands upon, all that God has revealed about himself. So now that we've laid a foundation for faith, let's see what Abraham's faith looks like. What does it mean for Abraham to exercise faith? Look at verse 6. This is the moment of Abraham's faith, just the beginning of verse 6. Then he, that is Abraham, believed in the Lord. Abraham believed in the Lord. Really short little verse here that says something incredibly important. He believed, it's perfect tense, it means that this isn't just a flicker of faith, it is a choice to to place his trust in God. That's what's going on here. Abraham is deciding to decisively place his trust in what God has revealed about himself. When you look at Abraham's example, it helps you to, to arrive at a definition of what faith is. What does the Bible mean when it talks about this word faith or belief? Well, I think that the simplest definition that I can come up with is simply reasoned trust. That's the essence of what the Bible means by faith. It is reasoned trust. You are making a reasoned decision to trust in the truth of God's revelation. Now, I want to unpack that for you. I want to help you understand that. And the best way I've found to understand what faith is, is to contrast it with what faith is not. So for a moment, I want to contrast for you. I want to set up four opposites, four things that faith is not to help you to better understand what faith is. So first, biblical faith is not a blind leap. Sometimes people assume that we, when we have chosen to, to be part of this Christian religion, that we have gone against reason, we have closed our eyes to logic and taken a blind leap into the dark. That's what they see faith is. You go against logic and you just choose to jump off a cliff and believe. Well, if faith is a blind leap, then I don't want to be a Christian. I'm not going to trust my life and my eternal destiny to an unreasonable blind leap in the dark. I encourage you not to do so either. That's not what biblical faith is. It is not a blind leap into the dark. Biblical faith is based on evidence. 
It's based on evidence. We gather all the evidence we can from God's word, from the world, from our lives. We gather all the evidence and then we ask ourselves, does the God of the Bible best explain all the evidence? That's why I'm a Christian. Because I've looked at all the evidence, I've studied all the evidence out there, and I've come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible best explains reality as I have experienced it. Faith is not a blind leap. It's based on evidence. Biblical faith is a lot like the faith that you exercise when you choose to get on an airplane. When I go down to Easterwood Airport and I get on an airplane, I'm not making a blind leap. I have evidence. I have a lot of evidence for why it is reasonable to get on that plane. If I did not have evidence, if I didn't think it was reasonable, I wouldn't get on the plane. I wouldn't entrust my life to it. No, I I know that the plane was well-engineered. I know that the airlines have to follow rigorous processes to keep it safe. I know the government, the FAA, watches over it. And I know the, the historical evidence that it's actually statistically safer to get on a plane than to get in your car. I know all the evidence, and that evidence leads me to put my faith in the plane to get me safely to Dallas. Okay, so biblical faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It's based on evidence. So that's the first thing that I want you to contrast faith to. Faith is not a blind leap. But on the flip side, on the other side of the coin, biblical faith is also not proof. Faith is not certainty. I know there's a lot of Christians who assume that a mature Christian will never struggle with doubt. A mature Christian is a man or woman who is absolutely certain that the Bible is true. No, that's not correct. That kind of certainty is not possible this side of heaven because we don't have proof yet. We won't have proof until we see God face to face. Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. I have not yet seen God. I do not have proof. I have lots of evidence, but I don't have proof. I don't have certainty. I won't have certainty until I die and see him face to face. Biblical faith is not proof. Again, going back to the airplane analogy. If we get on an airplane together, I cannot prove to you that that airplane is going to get us safely to Dallas. I have lots of evidence for why it's reasonable for you and I to get on the plane, but I can't prove to you that it'll get us to Dallas safely until we're sitting in Dallas. Until we're there, then we'll know. Well, so it is with Christianity. I can't prove to you that the God of the Bible is true until we're standing in his presence. This side of heaven, we live by faith, not by sight. And because of that, how do you feel when you get on an airplane? If you're like me, I know a ton about airplanes. I I, I know all the evidence about how they're safe. And yet when I get on an airplane, I feel a little bit of anxiety, feel a little bit of fear. I feel a little bit of doubt in my gut because I don't have absolute proof that this plane is going to get me safely to Dallas. That's how it always works with faith in this life. When you choose to believe in God, when you place your faith in God, there will always be a little bit of doubt mixed in with your faith because you don't yet have proof. You don't yet have certainty. And that's okay that that faith and doubt coexist in the hearts of all believers this side of heaven got to understand, doubt is not the opposite of faith. What is the opposite of faith? Not doubt, but disbelief. Disbelief, that settled decision to say no. The God of the Bible does not exist. 
Back to the airplane example. This is what disbelief looks like. Disbelief is the guy who hears all the evidence about the safety of the plane, but says, no, thank you. I'm going to rent a car. That's, that's disbelief. He doesn't get on the plane. Doubt still gets on the plane. Doubt says, man, I'm afraid. I don't know what's going on. I can't explain everything. I really hope this is going to work out, but I'm going to get on the plane. That's doubt. Faith and doubt coexist in the hearts of all believers this side of heaven. So if you struggle with doubt, don't feel like you are lesser than other people. Don't feel like you are immature. We all wrestle with doubt because we don't yet have proof. Faith is not a blind leap, but neither is it proof or certainty. Let me give you two other contrasts to better understand faith. Faith is not simply knowledge. Not simply knowledge of facts. I chose the word trust really carefully because I wanted to help you understand. Biblical faith is, just, is not just knowledge of facts or knowledge of the claims of Christianity. Biblical faith is a choice to entrust your life to the truth of God's revelation. So going back to the airplane analogy. I know a lot about airplanes. When I came to a and I was actually an aeronautical engineering major at first because I wanted to work at Boeing. I've toured aircraft manufacturing facilities. I know a lot about planes. I have a lot of knowledge about planes, but that knowledge did not become faith until I did what? Got on the plane. Until the flight attendant called and said, final boarding, and I got up and walked on the plane, that's the moment that knowledge turned into faith. I chose to entrust my life to that plane. That's how biblical faith works. You take all the knowledge you have about Jesus, about Christianity, about the Bible, and you choose to place your life in it. You choose to entrust your life, your soul, your future to the truth of God's revelation. That's what biblical faith is. There are so many people in our country that know a lot about Christianity. They know who this Jesus guy is. They know what he claimed. They know what we say about him. They know a whole lot of information, but they're not Christians because they have not trusted in the truth of that information for them. They've not entrusted their lives to Jesus. Biblical faith is a choice to trust that God's revelation is true for you. Okay, so biblical faith, it's not just knowledge of facts. That's too small of a definition. We need to be careful not to to define faith too small. But on the flip side... We have to be careful not to define faith too big. Lots of churches do. Lots of churches add things to faith and make the definition too big. They add commitment to obey. A lot of churches out there that teach that biblical faith, true faith, is not just a choice to trust in God, but a commitment to surrender your life to Jesus and obey him in every way. Now, let's be really clear. Every single one of us is called to surrender to Jesus and obey him every day. God expects us to do that. We should do that. But that is not part of faith. That word faith, it is simply trust. Surrender and commitment to obey. Those should follow faith. Those should come for the rest of our lives, but they're not part of faith. And if you don't have enough surrender, if you don't have enough obedience, it doesn't invalidate your faith. How do I know that? Because I know what Abraham did next. After believing God in Genesis 15, what does Abraham do in Genesis 16? He's not real faithful. He gets impatient with God, impatient with God's promise. And so he and Sarah craft this plan. Abraham has a baby with Sarah's maid, Hagar, and it has disastrous results for his family. 
Then what does Abraham do some years later? Genesis chapter 20, Abraham feels afraid, and so instead of trusting God, once again he gives away his wife to a king, and God has to supernaturally step in. So if biblical faith included a commitment to obey, then clearly Abraham did not have faith. That's not how faith works. Faith should be followed by obedience, but obedience is not part of faith. Faith is simply a choice to entrust one's life to the truth of God's revelation. Okay, so when we look at at faith, when we compare it to these four things that it is not, I think it leads us to to a better understanding that I want to put in front of you with this definition. Here's how I've tried to wrap it all together. This is what faith means to me. Biblical faith looks like this. Consistent with the evidence, but beyond what I can prove, I choose to believe that the God of the Bible is true and therefore worthy of my trust. Consistent with the evidence, this is not a blind leap in the dark, but beyond what I can prove, I'm not certain, I don't have proof, I choose to believe that the God of the Bible is true and therefore worthy of my trust, I entrust my life to him. That's what biblical faith looks like. So now we have a better idea of what faith is. What I want to do next as we continue through chapter 15, I want to ask ourselves, what does faith result in? This faith in Abraham's life, what are the results of it? Two things for Abraham. When he chooses to place his trust in God, the result is twofold. First of all, it brings relationships. Second of all, it brings reward. The results of faith, relationship and reward for Abraham and for us. So let's look at each of these. Let's begin with relationship. Look with me again at verse 6. Let's finish verse 6 together. Then he that is Abraham believed in the Lord, and he that is the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed and God reckoned it as righteousness. Now this is certainly not the first time in Abraham's life when Abraham believed and God reckoned it as righteousness. Abraham had been doing this for years. This just happens to be the moment in the story where the author, Moses, wants to make it explicit, this connection between faith and God's approval. This is where Moses really wants to draw our attention and help us understand that it is faith that brings God's approval. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the particular words here, righteousness. When you see that, you tend to think of righteousness as a moral category. Righteousness is doing good things. Well, that's not what it means. That's, that's not what's going on here. Righteousness, as it's biblically defined, is to be rightly related to God. It is a relational term. It means that when God looks at you, he says, that person is approved, accepted. You are in the right with me. Now, you all know enough theology to know that no human being is born into a right relationship with God. We aren't born into a right relationship with God because we're born sinners. We love sin. We, we do sins. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all born in sin and that sin separates us from God. So we are not born in right relationship with God. We are actually all born as enemies to God, as rebels to God. So what is it that transfers a person from enemy of God who deserves judgment into child of God who receives life? What is it that transfers you from enemy to child? Always faith. It's that moment in time decision to entrust your life, your destiny to God. That moment that you say, God, I believe, I trust my life to you. That's what moves you from enemy to child. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3. 
For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Justified. Same word, but in Greek as uh, what was put here, credited as righteousness in Hebrew in Genesis 15. So same word in Genesis and in Paul. You receive justification. You are approved by God. You enter into his family, not through works, but through faith alone. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It is always faith that brings you into the family of God. Now, for a lot of people, they have a sense of that in the New Testament, but one of the most frequent questions I get asked is, how did salvation work in the Old Testament? I know that for us, we enter into the family of God, we're forgiven, we we are saved through faith, but for them, wasn't it like sacrifices and the law and being a Jew, that kind of stuff? And and it's, it's helpful to help people step back and realize, no, salvation has always worked the same way. Here's how I summarize it. Here's how salvation has always worked. From Adam all the way to you today, this is how you enter into the family of God. How you find forgiveness and salvation from your sins. What is it that saves you? The answer is always the same. It's not works. It's not obedience or merit. It's actually also not faith. Faith doesn't save you. Now, there's no supernatural power in your faith. You're mustering up this belief, this trust. There's no power in it to forgive you of sins and take you to heaven. What saves you? God. God is always the one who saves. From Adam to the last person born on this earth, it is only God who can save. He alone has the power to cleanse you of sin and take you to heaven. That's good news for those of us like me who wrestle with doubt. It was not my faith that saved me that moment when I was four and believed the gospel for the first time. It wasn't my faith, it was God. That's good news. When I have a really bad day today and I feel like I'm, I have very little faith, that's okay. It was never my faith that got me saved. It's never my faith that's keeping me saved. It is God alone who saves. Always, Old Testament, New Testament alike. So God is always the one who saves, but why? Why should a righteous, holy, self-sufficient, free, omnipotent God save limited sinners like us? What motivates him? Well, not works, not good deeds, not merit, not church attendance or synagogue attendance. The answer is always the same from Adam all the way to us. What motivates God to save us? Always grace. Grace, that that desire to give someone something good that they don't deserve. That is always only what has motivated God to give salvation. Old Testament, New Testament alike. That's why he saves. Third question, how does he save? How does a righteous God save unrighteous people like us? Because God is is righteous. He is too holy to sweep your sins under the rug. You can't turn a blind eye to the bad stuff you've done. So how does a righteous God save unrighteous people? The answer is always the same. Through Jesus' death. Through the blood of Christ. That is how God has saved every person who's ever been saved from Adam to you. Even Abraham. Abraham was saved through the death of Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham didn't know anything about it. He didn't know about Jesus. He didn't know what Jesus would do. But God saved Abraham looking forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. He saved you looking back to the sacrifice of Jesus. It is always only the blood of Christ that can allow a righteous God to save unrighteous people. So always it's been through the death of Jesus. Fourth question, what does God require of us? What must he see in us before he applies Christ's blood to us? Always the same thing. Never works, never merit, never ethnic descent. Always faith. That decision, moment in time, choice to trust God with your life. That is always what God requires of us. 
So those four things have never changed. True from Adam all the way to the day, all the way to the end of time. There is actually only one thing that has changed over time, and that is the content of faith. What exactly must you believe? Well, that has gotten larger as time has passed because God has revealed more about himself to us. What did Abraham have to believe? Not a whole lot. He didn't know a whole lot. He really just had to believe verses four and five. God's promise. I will give you a son who will become a mighty nation. He just had to believe that. What do we have to believe? A little bit more because we know more. If you want to summarize what exactly do we have to believe, best place to go, that verse you memorized when you were four years old, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is the gospel. You must believe that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you and rise from the dead so that through faith you could have eternal life. The moment that you believe that, you are moved from enemy of God who deserves death to child of God who receives grace. It's through faith that you enter into a relationship with God. So Abraham's decision to believe, it brings relationship, but that's not all. Let's talk about the second part of of what he receives from the Lord, the second result. He receives reward. Look with me at the rest of the chapter. We're going to just skim through it for lack of time. Look with me at verse 7. And he, that is God, said to him, that is Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So another promise. God is saying, I'm going to give you all this land. And then Abraham asks a legitimate question in verse 8. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Abraham isn't disbelieving God. Abraham's just asking, God, what if I prove unworthy? What if I blow it again? What if somebody more righteous comes along? Are you going to change your mind? God, how do I know that that you're not going to take this away from me? Abraham is asking, God, can you give me greater assurance? Can you give me confidence that you're going to fulfill your word no matter what? So Abraham asked for that and God says yes. God rewards Abraham's faith with greater assurance, greater confidence. Look with me. Uh, We'll actually skip down a bit. Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham wants more confidence. He wants more assurance that God is going to fulfill his promises. And so God says, yes, Abraham, I'm going to give you more confidence. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to take this up a notch. I'm going to turn my promises into a covenant. A covenant, what's a covenant? In the ancient world, a covenant was like a binding contract between two or more people. It bound them together. They had to fulfill their promises. A covenant was a serious thing. And in the ancient world, when you entered into a covenant with someone, you would act out a ceremony. You don't just sign on a line. You actually act out. You're kind of actors playing a a ceremony out for everyone to see. And the more serious the covenant was, the more serious the ceremony was. And the most serious type of covenant available in the ancient world was what we call a blood covenant. The ceremony was you would go get animals and slaughter them and move their pieces to two sides and then both parties of the covenant would walk between those dead pieces of animals. That's as serious as it gets. Well, God looks at Abraham and says, I want to give you confidence, so I'm going to choose the most serious type of covenant available. God enters into a blood covenant with Abraham. Look with me at verse 9. 
So he, that is God, said to him, Abraham, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and the three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. So, so far, it's exactly what we'd expect with a blood covenant. God has Abraham sacrifice these animals and move them to two sides. Now, the next thing that would typically happen is both parties would walk through, but look what happens in this covenant. Look with me at, at verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which throughout the Bible are symbols of God's presence, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Who goes through the dead pieces of animals? Only God. Only God. Abraham is just a passive observant. He is just witnessing it. Abraham doesn't go through the pieces. What is God saying? God is telling Abe, Abe, it's not up to you. I take all the responsibility on my own shoulders to fulfill this promise. It is absolutely guaranteed. I swear myself to it. I am walking through the pieces to show you this is guaranteed. I will fulfill my word. This is the moment when God begins or ratifies, or to use a biblical word, cuts what we come to call the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we're going to actually talk about that a lot this semester. It is actually the most important contract anywhere in your Bible. When someone asks you, why did Jesus come to earth? That's the answer right there. Abrahamic covenant, because God said he would. Now, they didn't know it at the time. But all that Jesus does, all that God has done in your life and my life is based on that verse in Genesis 15. God's solemn covenant promise to Abraham to fulfill his word. So let's step back and think about what God has done. Abraham chose to believe God. He chose to place his trust in God. And how did God respond? God gave him not only a relationship, but God rewarded him with greater assurance, greater confidence. And that's exactly what God does for you and I. When we choose to walk with God in faith day after day, Choosing to to believe, choosing to trust that the God of the Bible is real despite our doubts, despite our fears, despite our struggles. God rewards our choice to walk in faith by growing our assurance and confidence in him. I know that in my own life. I've seen that time and time again. Uh, If you've been with us for a while, you know from other stories I've shared, I am a very skeptical person by nature. Incredibly skeptical. I doubt everything. Everything. So with my faith, I'm full of doubts. I've always lived with doubts. They've always been in my heart. I've always struggled with them and wrestled with them. If mature Christianity is the absence of doubt, then I am incredibly immature. I wrestle with doubt, but what I have seen year after year, I wrestle with those doubts, but I continue to believe that God exists, even though I can't explain him, even though I can't figure him out, even though I've got all these doubts, I choose to believe that he exists, I choose to trust my life to him, and what I've found is that year after year, as I walk in faith, still struggling with doubt, God is faithful to reward my faith with growing assurance. That's what he's done. I believe in God more now than I did 10 years ago. Still have doubts, still lots I can't explain, but I have seen God gradually grow my faith in the midst of my doubts because I have chosen to walk by faith day after day. So faith, when you choose to entrust your life to God, what are the results? That first moment that you entrust God, the most important result 
you enter into an eternal relationship with God. You go from enemy to child of God now and forever. And then as you continue to walk in faith, as you continue to trust God with your life, God grows your confidence. He grows your assurance in him. So now let's apply this. Let's talk about what this this does for us. How do we apply Genesis 15 to our lives? Well, for some of you, the application of this chapter is that you need to choose to trust God for the first time. Maybe you're here this morning and you have heard many things about Christianity. You know a lot of things about the Bible. You know a lot of things about Jesus. But there has been no moment in your life when you have entrusted your life and your future to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard a lot about Jesus, but you are still trying to, to earn God's love. You're actually coming to church this morning because you want the brownie points. You want to look good to God. You want to earn of it as acceptance through your good deeds and church attendance. What I would encourage you to do today is to realize that God's love is not something you earn. It's not something you have to work for. It is a free gift. A free gift that Jesus purchased for you by dying in your place and rising from the dead and God offers it to you if you will simply in faith say yes. Yes, God, I trust myself to you. I trust that Jesus' death was enough to pay for all of my sins. I'm gonna quit trying to work for your love and believe it's already mine. If you've never made that decision to entrust your life to God through Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day. Now, for those of us who have trusted God with our lives, we've trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior. I think the application for us as we look at Genesis 15 is we need to grow in faith. We need to grow in faith. We need to learn to trust God more and more with our lives. That's actually the measure of maturity is growing faith. Not faith absent of doubt, but growing faith. Growing so that every day more and more you entrust yourself to God. God wants to grow your faith. How do you grow faith? Well, you look back at Abraham's example. What is faith built upon? God's revelation. If you want your faith to grow, you need to grow to better know what he has revealed about himself. You need to spend time in his word digging deeply into it so you understand it better. You need to spend time in God's world. It's a beautiful day. Go outside, look around, see your God. See what he has done. Grow your faith by spending time in the revelation of God. I'm really grateful you guys are here this morning. I hope you keep coming, but the primary place where you're gonna grow in God's revelation is not here on Sunday mornings. It's in a small group with other believers where you are entering into the word of God, studying it for yourself, applying it to your life, praying for one another, that's where faith grows. So make sure you are involved with other believers growing in the word of God. The third application I have for you, I don't even have it on PowerPoint because my wife gave it to me between services because she's really brilliant. She was listening to this and she said, you know really what you ought to end with, Blake? Because she knows my story. She also is a skeptic like me. You need to try to grow your faith through spending time in the word. But if you wrestle with doubts like Julie and I do, if you wrestle to believe, if you struggle to believe everything that God's revealed in his word, you know the best thing you can do? Pray and ask God to grow your faith. Just go before God and be honest. God, I struggle with X, whatever it is. Whatever teaching from the Bible, whatever piece of theology, whatever thing it is, God, I struggle to believe that. Please help me. Remember what Jesus said to the man whose, whose son was, was uh, demoniac and, and this man is asking Jesus to heal him. What, is actually the, what does the man say to Jesus? Jesus asks him, do you believe? And the man says, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe, but help my unbelief because belief and unbelief are mixed together in me this side of heaven. And how does Jesus respond to his request? 
Does it rebuke him? No. Jesus grants his wish. He performs a miracle right in front of him to show the man how powerful he is, to grow his faith. When you say to God, God, I believe, help my unbelief, God will always honor that prayer. He loves that prayer. He says, yes, all right. You choose to believe. You walk with me today. I will grow your faith. So if you wrestle with doubts, if you struggle to believe, have hope. You are not immature. You're like all of us. Go before the Lord and say, God, I do believe, but help my unbelief, please. And God will. Let's ask God for that right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are so gracious and so kind. We thank you for your compassion and your mercy. You know how weak we are. You know how we struggle, how we doubt, how we grow afraid and anxious about life. Thank you that you are patient with us, Father. We thank you that you offer us eternal life as a free gift. It's not something we have to work for. You make it free through the death of your son, Jesus. Father, we pray for any person in this room who who hasn't yet received that free gift of eternal life. Please, Lord, let this be the moment when they would see that your love isn't something to earn. It is a free gift to receive through faith. And for all of us who have received that free gift, Father, we do believe, but please help our unbelief. Please, Father, grow us so that we might believe more deeply in Jesus. Grow us so that we might entrust more of our lives to you, really walking with you in ever deeper faith. I pray, Father, that you would grow our faith so that we can better glorify and honor you in this world. I pray that when people look at Grace Bible Church, they would see a church that walks in faith, that walks in ever-deepening belief in you and in your power. Thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you that you are faithful to us, even when we are not faithful to you. Thank you for Jesus, who made it possible for us to be your children. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.